Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone 6, Chapter 7, The Sorting Hat. And as promised, we're going to talk a little bit about the images at the front of the chapters. And in this one, we find an image of Peeves in a, a very a floating sort of lotus position, holding a bundle of sticks, which later on in the chapter he will throw at the students as they walk up, at the Gryffindors in particular, as they walk up to their first uh, to the fat lady who guards their common room for the first time. And so the dark world of the wizards, or the dark aspects of the world of the wizards, will start to show themselves some in, uh, uh, in more prominence as we get deeper into our education of Hogwarts and the world in which we now find ourselves. And so something interesting about Peeves is that by holding a bundle of sticks, this recalls to us the old folk tale where the father hands three sticks to three brothers and each one is asked to break the stick and they do but then when three sticks are placed together and they are asked to break the sticks it is found to be substantially harder and the idea behind this seems to be that when individuals come together in order to form a society they become stronger and the the problem then becomes maintenance of the society as it continues to grow while also maintaining individuality and there are different ways of doing this as we know from the 20th century of course the big two ways that came into conflict were uh through uh socialistic communism and capitalistic democracy um broadly speaking and so what we will find in this chapter is that the individuals placed within the society at least in the west both britain and america is indicated uh, one of the great symbols of individualism is one's hat what one wears on one's head does one have a police hat on a a uh, top hat on a construction hat on the hat that the pope wears that the south park creators claim is made for a rabbit um we are going to receive in this in this chapter not only symbols of how to integrate within a society with a robust tradition and culture in particular this magical community this british mag magical community but how to ensure the survival of that society through developing one's own individuality as well and the great symbol of that will in fact be the great sorting hat which we will talk about in just a moment something interesting about peeves as you know there's of course a verb that we use which is to peeve somebody to annoy them and we call somebody peevish adjectively speaking when they are annoying when they like to annoy us and so peeves will present himself as a very particular sort of spirit a poltergeist a a, a spirit that serves as a trickster sort of figure hermetic in that respect in that he will present himself sort of as a fool but um, um, the famous quote that that recalls to us is, a fool who persists in his folly may become wise. And so he's a prefiguration of the self too, um, or the archetype which draws somebody into the greatest actuality of their potential existence. And so even peeves in an alchemical way provides something important to us. And something interesting too is that as he's something of a negative character, he causes negative emotion. He gets into the way of people just like Soren Kierkegaard suggested that rather than make things easier for people, he would present greater problems to them, just as Anthony Hopkins' great Robert Ford does as sort of maze master in the Westworld. Well, Peeves, who is allowed there by Dumbledore, can be controlled only by the Bloody Baron, who we'll find is the, the ghost, and we find that there are ghosts here in Hogwarts, actual substantial embodiments of tradition, and the, the shadows of the past 
as it were. And um, the Bloody Baron, who's covered in silvery blood, and nearly headless Nick, who represents a, f a hero and how one can fall short, even as a Gryffindor, because he will be the head of Gryffindor House, and we'll talk about the houses again very soon, um, when the Sorting Hat starts to sing. Well, we see that Peeves serves the Bloody Baron in the same way that the archetype of the trickster or the fool serves the archetype of the self or the wise one. That one must be first foolish and take nothing for granted. Leave no stone unturned, no sorcerer's stone, the stone of little worth, the cornerstone. And in giving one's attention even to such low things, one may become wise. And so now on to a brief description of Professor McGonagall before getting on to the sorting hat. And behind the door to Hogwarts, who should we meet as Hagrid opens it? Well, just as Odysseus, the first person he meets when he returns to Ithaca, to home, his, his both imaginative and real home, perhaps real, definitely imaginative. So, so is he greeted by Athena. Well, here, Harry and all the young Hogwarts students, or soon-to-be Hogwarts students, the enrollees, are greeted, are greeted by uh, the Great Witch, Minerva McGonagall, and of course Minerva is the Roman name for Athena, and so she as transfiguration professor or ability to transform the reality outside of herself is, um, is a figure of Athena or wisdom, and so she will introduce these students to their first mysteries, to um, the traditions of the, the, the traditions of Hogwarts that are most relevant to them. And so she introduces the concept of the sorting to them, which they will just now undertake, the four houses, the house cup. And so we find out, like all societies, again, touching our theme of the individual's relation to society, that um, this uh, school endeavor will be both cooperative and competitive. On the one hand, they will work within their house group, the one of four, in order to defeat the other in order to defeat, to compete against the other houses. And so just as in our society, say we compete against each other for jobs and resources and for the affections of others, and so, so will they do so here in Hogwarts in a simulated form. Obviously, this form is simulated in order to, uh, in proportion, or excuse me, in direct relation to how the students will be cooperating and competing in the larger society as a whole, which is what makes it fun because it's relevant. And so just before we get to the sorting, we meet uh, the first ghost that we meet, which is the Fat Friar. And though I've mentioned Bloody Bear, the Bloody Baron, uh, who will be the head of Slytherin House or the ghost of Slytherin House, I've mentioned Peeves, who's controlled by the Bloody Baron, or the Bloody Baron is the only person who can conceivably control Peeves. We've talked about Sir um, uh, Nearly Headless Nick, um, who is the Gryffindor head of house, and but the actual first ghost that we see is the Fat Friar, and so typical of Hufflepuffs, who will be described as sort of uh, gregarious, trustful, or trusting, trustworthy, rather, and loyal, he, he encourages the students. He says, uh, he tells them not to worry. And so even his appearance of sort of jolly acceptance is made to put the students at ease, and so that will begin to tell us something of the character of the Hufflepuffs, that they bring something of the warmth and affection of life um, to existence, a very important part. And so in that way, even though he is male, he's sort of like 
a figure of the Great Mother, especially in his amorphous form. And uh, also like Hestian, that he creates a sort of warm environment. And so the actual animal that will represent um, Hufflepuff, a badger, is also known for having such a home. Badgers, of course, burrow beneath the ground. And so let's get to the sorting hat itself. So a four-legged stool is brought out. And again, we see that motif of four Quidditch balls, houses. We'll soon see the four poster beds. It's patched. It's frayed. It's extremely dirted, dirty, and it's a pointed wizard's hat. So uh, in that it is uniform with all other hats, pointed wizard hats, it is a symbol of tradition. And that it is dirty and frayed means that it is a very old tradition that has been around and has seen some better times and also that its value lies not in how it appears but what it is capable of doing very similar to the notion of the again alchemist uh, philosopher's stone and also the genie of the lamp recall how aladdin reacts when he first sees the lamp he says all this just for this crummy little lamp but that lamp helps him to fulfill his destiny, helps him to see his destiny. And, well, so will this sorting hat help these students to see their destinies. And rather than having our own students now uh, long for such a hat, perhaps we can find that such a hat is a symbol for something that lies within us, perhaps our own dormant logos, which the archetype of the self helps us all to see exists within each of us. And so the hat sings. Oh, you may not think I'm pretty, but don't judge on what you see. I'll eat myself if you can find a smarter hat than me. Hey, you can keep your bowlers back, or black, excuse me, your top hat sleek and tall. For I'm the Hogwarts sorting hat, and I can cap them all. There's nothing hidden in your head the sorting hat can't see. So try me on, and I will tell you where you ought to be. You might belong in Gryffindor, where dwell the brave at heart. Their daring, nerve, and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. You might belong in Hufflepuff, where they are just and loyal. Those patient Hufflepuffs are true and unafraid of toil. Excuse my intonation here. Or yet in wise old Ravenclaw, if you've a ready mind, where those of wit and learning will always find their kind. Or perhaps in Slytherin you'll make your real friends. Their cunning folk use any means to achieve their ends. So put me on, don't be afraid, and don't get in a flap. You're in safe hands, though I have none, for I'm a thinking cap. And so the hat itself says, not to judge it by its appearance, but that which is on the inside. What is on the inside? Its capacity to think. Because what is it? It is a thinking cap. And so what does it seek to help each student to find within himself? The capacity to think through his or her own abilities and desires and to place himself within the appropriate category that will, uh, uh, category or place that suits his temperament and uh, desired future in order to appropriately or best situate himself or herself in order to use his or her logos or conscious thinking ability in order to navigate the Scylla and Charybdis and all the difficulties and obstacles one must get through in school and in life in order to achieve one's goals. 
And so let's get into what the Sorting Hat says uh, about each of the houses. So Gryffindor, which is going to be our, our star house, which features uh, the most significant features of a hero. Even the colors gold for divinity, red for sacrifice, um, uh, represented by a golden lion, Albus Dumbledore, was said to have been a Gryffindor, the figure of the divine. Um, a phoenix will will help and assist uh, the Gryffindor house by bringing the sword of Godric Gryffindor to them. And something about each of the Hogwarts houses is they are named for one of the witches or wizards who helped to stop start uh, Hogwarts in the first place. And each has a um, has a name subject to alliteration: Rowena, uh, Ravenclaw. Um, Salazar, Slytherin, Godric, Gryffindor, and of course Helga, Hufflepuff. And so the Gryffindors are described as brave, daring, which means something of willing uh, in the face of danger. They're said to have nerve, which means they're steady, and to be chivalrous, which means they defend the weak. So they are the archetypal heroes. They're brave, they keep their nerve in dangerous situations, they're steady when others might collapse, and they fight to protect the weak. Very straightforward. In fact, Ron, like his brothers before him, will be sorted into Gryffindor. Hermione, who really wanted to be Gryffindor because that's the the house that Albus Dumbledore supposedly was in. And also because later when she's talking to Percy himself, someone who wants to rise in the dominance hierarchy and has done so successfully going beyond his poor family roots, um, just as his brothers Bill and Charlie have done as well with their work with Gringotts and with the dragons. Um, Hermione mentions that she's most interested in transfiguration and the art of wisdom or practiced wisdom in the world. You might say practical uh, wisdom, prudence. And who teaches that? Well, the figure of wisdom, Athena, Minerva McGonagall, who is also the head of the Gryffindor house. So um, Hermione shows herself to be very much savvy, not only in doing what's necessary to put herself in the position to be victorious, but putting herself in the position to be around those who will help her to be victorious as well, choosing well uh, to help Neville, seeing him as incompetent on the train, and she'll be in position to help him and other uh, less competent individuals all throughout this series, be, uh, assuming that nobody is quite as competent as Hermione, which is a very interesting claim to make, but uh, also a very easy one to substantiate as well. She also positions herself next to Percy, a figure of authority who knows the ropes intelligently and will now found, find herself in Gryffindor House, which um, uh, means that she has the highest possible goals for herself and understands the people that will help her to get there, particularly McGonagall, who will now be the, her head of house and her teacher of the subjects she most wants to learn. And so, very smart of Hermione. Um, let's see. Neville will find himself in, in Gryffindor. Perhaps he will show himself to have a great heart, but perhaps at first the idea behind him being there is uh, needed to be somebody Hufflepuff-like enough to uh, make his way into the story in this first book and well since jk rowling doesn't do a great job of integrating the storylines of other of other houses except in say sporting events largely like um quidditch and even then slytherin has a rather prominent place um neville is the sort of hufflepuff would be who finds himself in gryffindor and so we find out about the Ravenclaws now that they're wise, the wise old Ravenclaws. They have ready minds and of wit and learning. We see why both Ron 
and Hermione would have been okay being Ravenclaws, because that means you're very smart and something will find out eventually about Ravenclaws. Then in order to get into their common room, one has to answer a riddle, which is always changing, which means one always has to be of ready mind in order to be a Ravenclaw, indicating that Athena would like them as well, because one thing that Athena says to Odysseus in the Odyssey uh, when he gets back to Ithaca about why she loves him is that he is always thinking he never loses his head, and that is why she is always with him, even when he doesn't recognize. She, of course, is wisdom. Um, oh, excuse me, and I skipped the Hufflepuffs. So the Hufflepuffs are described as just, loyal, patient, true, and unafraid of toil. And so you might say that they give the positive emotion to all, all the houses. And um, that they are the ones that ensure that there is a war atmosphere of warmth, that they are baking the things around them, that they are helping it with the support functions in the school. You might imagine that Hufflepuffs go on to become th uh, things like nurses and teachers and um, it, the sorts of people that care for people. And um, uh, that seems to be a defining aspect of Hufflepuffs. They are people people. And um, on the other end of that, and, and whereas, say, Ravenclaws and um, and uh, Gryffindors tend to be known for their talents, Ravenclaws, particularly because what they offer to their communities is their intelligent minds, Gryffindors, their great bravery and capacity to be competent. But then we get the description of Slytherin, which is interesting, too, because we can see that what enters into society through Slytherins and sly Slytherin on the ground, snake-like, is not only a, a capacity, a potential for success, but also the capacity to create negative emotion through potential uh, betrayal or dark magic or dark means being used in order to be successful. So potentially uh, they are so sly that they get what they want at a cost they cannot bear. And so... If you're too successful for yourself in a society and the society thus collapses because of that, then you lose just as much as everybody else. And so if you happen to be a figure like one of the Malfoys, in particular Lucius, Draco's father, and you support someone who wants to destroy the society that's given you so much, then don't you end up with less in the final analysis as well? And so Slytherin is described as cunning folk who use any means to achieve their ends. And so when Harry puts on the hat, the sorting hat, the hat guides his thoughts. Page 121. The last thing Harry saw before the hat dropped over his eyes was the hall full of people craning to get a good look at him. Next second, he was looking at the black inside of the hat. He waited. And so notice that he cannot see, and so this is an inner dialogue that he's having here between just him and his capacity to think, or the top hat. Um, so, hmm, said a small voice in his ear. Difficult, very difficult. Plenty of courage, I see. Not a mi bad mind either, so we see that it considers first uh, Gryffindor aspect. A Gryffindor aspect and then a Ravenclaw aspect. There's talent. Oh my goodness. And perhaps that's that's a Slytherin aspect. Yes, and a nice thirst to prove yourself, certainly Slytherin-like, but potentially also Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. Now that's interesting. So where shall I put you? Harry gripped the edges of the stool and thought, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, eh? said the small voice. Are you sure? 
You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head, and Slytherin will help you on the way to greatness. No doubt about that. No? Well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor. And so, Harry will join Hermione and Ron and the Weasley twins and Percy and Neville as uh, and, and Minerva McGonagall and also Albus Dumbledore as a great Gryffindor. But something interesting that the Sword and Hat there said is, you could be great, you could be great. And that reminds us of what Ollivander said about Voldemort, that he did great things, terrible things, uh, but great. And that there seems to be some understanding that the difference between, say, a dark wizard and a light wizard, perhaps even, a, say, a, a, a Sith dark Jedi and light Jedi, would be that... The dark wizards will pursue power at any cost, whereas those who are light respect a moral boundary. They have things that they are not willing to do. In fact, we'll find there are unforgivable uh, curses. They put limits on themselves in order to create meaning in their existence by, because by limiting themselves, they give themselves something to protect not only the abstract laws of their people and their being, but also the people themselves by not using such curses on them. And so, like Mr. West Chance a few days ago cited, I will cite here Eric Neumann and his origin and history of the unconscious, um, or excuse me, the, the origins and History of Consciousness. I'm also reading at the same time The Discovery of the Unconscious by Ellen Berger. And he says, the, the consciousness of archaic man is no more discriminating than a child's. There are good magicians and bad magicians, but their range of action seems far more important than the goodness or the badness of the act. And so that, that quote seems to suggest that that is what someone transfixed on transfixed on greatness like Voldemort saw that it doesn't matter whether the act is moral or immoral hurts or helps people it matters just the majesty of it the greatness of it the intensity of it the impact of it and so if Harry wanted to prove himself more than anything as great he would go Slytherin but as it is he wants more than anything, not, not simply to prove himself great, though he does want to prove himself, having been bullied his whole life, but to prove himself better than someone like a Voldemort who killed his parents, someone of capable of not making the ultimately selfish choice to be great at the expense of others, but to perhaps find his greatness in his goodness, in his capacity to protect others. And because of that, his bravery, his courage, his willingness to face that which will use any means necessary against him while restricting himself, that's what makes him a Gryffindor. And so Harry receives the biggest cheer of them all because now he is even more the archetypal hero, being thrust into the house of, of, of Gryffindor rather than Slytherin means good things. Rather than being a, a, an embodiment of the next Voldemort, he seems like the next Dumbledore archetypal hero. And so Dumbledore then s stands up and, interestingly, and uh, to the... Uh, ad, uh, to the consternation, or rather uh, befuddlement is a better word, of Harry Potter, he says a few words, and his few words are actually four words, and that idea of four again, and the four words are nitwit, 
means someone who's fairly stupid. Blubber, someone who's just saying words that don't matter. Oddment, something oddly said. And tweak, change it. And so it's almost as if the difference between something which is confusing and something that is utterly profound is just the smallest possible changes. But in any case, he understands that at this moment, the students are not so much hungry for knowledge as they are hungry for food, and poof, a bunch of food appears. Something interesting is there are several sorts of meat. It is an amazing uh, hook-like, Peter Pan-esque feast that is totally fabulous. And uh, something we'll get into in the later books is that um, the food does not just simply appear and disappear, but rather they're invisible house elves who are the invisible slaves of of uh, wizards who cater to the needs of the students. And in fact, Hermione, with her very, although she does seem rather disagreeable, her rather caring nature, you might say she's highly compassionate, she, she will help the, 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 the house elves to receive greater uh, benefits and rights. And in particular, there will be one house elf who we'll meet in book two named Dobby, who will develop a very close relationship with Harry along several different... Uh, dimensions. And so, while this dinner is going on, Harry gets his first look up at the table of teachers. And he scopes out one with long greasy hair and a long hooked nose with sharp eyes who looks at him and makes his scar burn. But at the same time, he also notices that Quirrell, who didn't have the purple turban on, when he first saw him back in the Leaky Cauldron, now has a purple turban on his head. And something interesting about that is that we see Harry's scar hurts, and we've seen the thinking cap or the sorting hat, and now we see a strange purple turban in this chapter. And so that indicates to us that this is a chapter about finding oneself, and in fact, and, and that how one finds oneself can be defined by one's hat um, along one dimension. And so, in fact, at the end of this chapter, Harry will have a dream, just like Aeneas dreaming of Hector, or Hamlet of his father, or Agamemnon of victory from Zeus and Nestor, or Jacob of the latter. In literature, there are many examples of dreams. In fact, Dante dreams three times in the Divine Comedy, and in this dream, the purple turban forces itself on the head of Harry. So rather than the sorting hat helping him to sort things out in his head, uh, like what the Logos allows one freely to do, this one tyrannically attempts to force itself onto his head, getting tighter and tighter and pushing farther and farther down and telling him he needs to be in Slytherin, transfer to Slytherin. And so it is attempting to force its will on him because it is the figure of Voldemort, because Voldemort is now obscured by the purple turban of Quirrell in the back of his head. But whereas Quirrell has lost in combat against the tyrannical force of will of Voldemort and is now going to be controlled by him effectively, or at least will be told what to do by him, Harry is going to reject that. And so Harry, not knowing what the face of evil looks like, yet first represents uh, uh, Voldemort as Draco Malfoy and then represents him as Snape, as unconscious uh, figures of the shadow for whom he or or people on whom he projects the figure of the shadow or evil or darkness draco with his talking about traditional families being better than muggle families and saying other some wizards are better than others and uh snape who harry perhaps incorrectly 
attributes uh, uh, the pain in his head to, um, the, suggesting that the great combat in this story will not simply be played out in the world, but also within the mind or heart of our great protagonist, Harry. And in fact, just to add one more point to the cap or hat idea, is that as the Gryffindors are led up to their common room, which is behind the portrait of the fat lady, they are told their first ever password, which is the Latin phrase caput draconis, which means the head of the snake, which not only makes a connection between Gryffindors and their act as heroes, uh, um, between them and St. George and the dragon, the great, the great hero who defeated uh, uh, the dragon uh, beneath his feet. There's be beautiful art about this, a great Christian hero, suggesting that he is sort of the figure that defeats the snake from the garden, the Luciferian element within himself, and suggesting that what the Gryffindors must do is they must cut the head off the dragon. They must defeat the the great enemy, the great smog, uh, if this were the Hobbit, or or one of the great dragons from the Game of Thrones series, which I know comes after, in some ways after, in some ways before. But also symbolically suggests that perhaps to defeat, uh, to take the head off evil, one must clear one's own head. Because perhaps it is the case that it is only through humans that good and evil come about, because only humans are conscious of their use of tools and which tools are useful or good to them and which are uh, obstacles or evil to them. And, uh, and what is good and evil to humans as a whole community and society, uh, or rather what is useful and what is not useful or obstacle-like or problematic, seems to define what becomes good and evil. And so, the head of the dragon, Caput Draconis, also foreshadows a potential defeat of the Slytherin house in the House Cup by the Gryffindors. As we hear, the Slytherins have won five years in a row. They've been dominating. And so, somebody's going to have to cut the head off the snake. It also potentially foreshadows Harry in books two, literally, and book seven, morally slash metaphorically cutting the head off the dragon or, or defeating the head of the snake. And in two, we'll actually meet a giant snake called a basilisk. And in seven, we'll meet a character who's actually um, represented by the image of a snake uh, uh, going through the eyes or a, a snake and skull image uh, and who is actually always accompanied by a basilisk named Nagini. And so there's a prefiguration at this very beginning point by this password of the head of the snake, not only of Slytherin losing the house cup, but of there being an actual snake or dragon that must be defeated. And we'll see that not only in book two, but in book four as well. And that will be a tremendous book to lecture on I, I, and a great pleasure with all of you, but also in a broadly moral way in uh, the figure of the great cosmic hero, Harry, versus the great cosmic enemy, Voldemort, should he come back around. Hmm. 
And so, because I already covered his dream and made connections to not only it, but other important dreams that have been had in classical literature, then I will complete this lecture now. One brief epilogue. Here's the song that is sung by all the students at Hogwarts, and they're told by Dumbledore to sing all at their own tune and their own, and they will sing at their own pace, indicating again another strong relationship between the individual and society. The song itself is a symbol of tradition that all the students come together in this format in order to sing, but they sing it in their own way and at their own speed. And in fact, the two funniest of them, George and uh, George and Fred will will be singing a funeral march or sort of a dirge, and so that too will find itself as uh, tremendous foreshadowing. And so let's hear this song. Hogwarts, Hogwarts, Hoggy, Warty, Hogwarts. Teach us something, please, whether we be old and bald or young with scabby knees. Our heads could do with filling with some interesting stuff. For now they're bare and full of air dead flies and bits of fluff. So teach us things worth knowing. Bring, e bring back what we forgot. Just do your best. We'll do the rest. And learn until our brains all rot. And so we see uh, an idea there that all humans develop along a sim similar ontogenetic pathway. We start with heads full of air and fluff. But then we learn things worth knowing. Uh, we bring back what we have forgotten. There's an idea of platonic remembrance there that all learning is remembering because humans do develop along the same, same uh, ontogenetic pathway as Piaget shows and how humans build up the structure of a mind from childhood on into adulthood. And also there's the idea of, of course, lifetime learning here and learn until our brains all rot. Well, the idea is that your brain doesn't begin to rot immediately after school, but that school gives you the tools necessary to learn at an even more rapid rate and actually with pleasure after you leave school. And I would say that that's the great thing that I've learned as a teacher, and not because I'm a teacher, but I would say I am a teacher because of this fact, which is the moment you learn in order to learn, or you learn because you think something is important rather than simply someone else tells you it's important, well, that's when the real magic starts and you learn what the whole key to education was in the first place. All right, epilogue over.